Researchers are voracious for data. It's why they do the research that they do. And patients have access to more data about themselves than ever before. When patients have access to data, they're willing to share that data for research. And so this time in history gives an incredible window to data-enable patients and let them bring that data in to drive the future of medical research. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. As a boy, Craig Lipset thought he wanted to become a doctor, but over time, he came to appreciate his real interest was, as he put it, engaging in the spirit of medicine at the population level, a pursuit that ultimately brought him to the forefront of digital health at Pfizer, establishing a capability long before most pharmas even recognized they needed it. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz, and today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa... Yes, David. <laughs> How about this quarantine? How's it going for you? It's awesome. I've seen every room in my house. <laughs> More than once. I drove past a gas station this morning. Gas is like two bucks. That's very confusing. I thought I was in high school again. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, it has been pretty strange, right? Yeah, I feel, you know, I, you know, it's hard to um, joke about in some ways, because you know how much people are suffering. In other ways, it's like utterly ridiculous, you know, what, what those of us who are fortunate enough not to be suffering are, are doing to, to manage our, you know, home life. It's insane. I know. It definitely feels like, okay, the initial adjustment period, you know, it's sort of gone from acute to chronic. And I think it's just that uh, people are getting a lot of quarantinitis. Yeah. But we are lucky yeah. today to have our quarantinitis interrupted with a breath of fresh air as we introduce today's magnificent guest, magnificent, I say, um, Craig Lipset. So welcome to the show, Craig. I am delighted to help contribute to the <laughs> quarantine-itis uh, resolution process, David and Lisa. Thank you. So Craig, I understand that you grew up in the distinct cultural milieu that is the North Shore of Long Island. You're a middle child. Your mom taught gifted and talented students. Your dad, you described as an entrepreneurial accountant. So naturally, you drifted towards music. Can you tell us about this? <laughs> yes, I am that rare Long Island Jew that you can have on this show. Isn't that a unique animal to have? But um, yeah, I... Lisa uh, and I will do our best to adjust. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for adjusting to that. Um, but, but true, I, uh, I, I went off to, uh, to college. I majored in music as an undergrad. And, what did you, uh, were you like a, a, were you a musician that you played an instrument or did you sing or write or what was your, I'm not going to sing for you, Lisa, but I, uh, <laughs> I did play a few different instruments. I did a lot of composition and theory. Um, I, I used to travel when I was in high school with an orchestra on Long Island. We would travel in the summers around the world to um, all corners of the world, stay in people's homes. It was a wonderful cultural experience. Um, and I tried to carry that with me as long as I could. Uh, so I, I wound up majoring in music in college. But I also did some other things in college that started to diversify my, uh, my work a bit. It's really amazing to me how many of the accomplished 
scientific medical and medical people we have on the show who started in music. I mean, it's really common actually, or at least the people we know it's common among. And I'm wondering if you have a, re- have a theory behind that, what, what that's about. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I went to Brandeis University in Waltham, Mass, and there were eight music majors in my graduating class. Two of us wound up in clinical research at Pfizer. Wow. Two out of eight. I, I used to joke I was going to go back and speak to the music majors at Brandeis and let them know that 25% of them had a future career yes. in clinical research at Pfizer and just watch <laughs> the expressions on their faces. But it also may be that we we select, as you know, ever so rigorously for a sort of creativity and imagination. And maybe that's what we're um, identifying, Lisa. Maybe or also the, common, the interaction of math and music that people have you know, studied and affinity for those two things together. I think that there is a natural affinity around the sciences and music. Um, and I think that you are absolutely right, David, as well, in that there is a self-selection that the people with creative arts backgrounds that did drift into some of these other areas, um, I think tend to, well, they tend to think differently in the organizations in which they operate. I love that. And um, but at the same time, like uh, just before we get to Brandeis, you also did have this background interest in medicine and science when you were growing up. Is that right? Well, yes, I I, I did. I had a Jewish grandmother and, uh, you know, we, uh, we we all wanted to make them happy. Um, but in all honesty, in, in college, I did work as an EMT, uh, part time, an emergency medical technician. And so I I was the music major by day that we get dressed up in an EMS uniform and head out and do night shifts with EMS services. That in the sounds North like Shore some of kind of straight stripper background. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a new uh, series I'm doing on USA television, Lisa. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, Lisa, maybe this quarantineitis is getting to you. Yeah, um, so, so, um, uh, but you did serve your pre-med requirements, but what you did is when you graduated Brandeis, you went back to New York to pursue an MPH, Master's of Public Health at Columbia, and an experience that you told me helped you enjoy the spirit of medicine at the population level. Can you tell us what you mean? What, 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 what were you thinking or what was your thought process around that? I think a lot of people think I'm an extrovert just because I like to talk. But I actually, the, the idea of one-on-one medicine just didn't suit my mindset, I learned, as I spent more time in, in a public health environment thinking about population levels and enjoying the impact of using data and information and interventions at, uh, at a population level. The feeling that I could make the same impact, but maybe less so at a, at a one-on-one um, interaction space with patients. And so that started to pull me t- more and more towards public health. And while most of my classmates then started to drift off into public health departments or aiming towards the CDC, I just became enamored with the scope of pharmacoeconomics mm-hmm. and the amount of money and, and resource that went into medicine development just to produce a single medicine. And so started to take this public health mindset of impact at a population level and apply it into pharmaceutical R&D. Maybe it's that you, it's not that you like the individual interactions less, but maybe it's just sort of like the idea of benefiting more people more, because I could easily see you as, um, as any kind of, as many kinds of doctors. Um, uh, so it seems like this is a really interesting, deliberate choice. You told me you were considering consulting then wound up, and this is just so striking to me as a, at a CRO, you know, you look at this career trajectory I wouldn't have necessarily seen I'm that. I'm not sure that everybody in the like audience will know what a CRO is. Well, I'm going to let an expert describe it, both what it was and how you came to consider it and then what you did there. 
when I when I finished off at uh, at Columbia with this degree, I was looking around at, at where to head next. You know, most of what I was learning, I was kind of learning on my own because there weren't career pathways that were really clear for people to move into the industry yeah, from a background in public health. health. And so searching around, I, the, the mindset that I had at the time was, how can I learn across a lot of different pharmaceutical companies at once? Um, thinking that the decision making and how things operated within each company was probably very different. What types of organizations can let me perhaps work across many of them? And I didn't know much about consulting firms. I threw an application into BCG, but I wasn't a, an MBA. And that's kind of the, the sweet spot for, for those types of organizations. Um, and somehow I came across one particular contract research organization. I was working in that uh, part of the country up outside of Massachusetts. This company was called Paracel, and they were one of the larger of these, as you mentioned, these CROs. CROs are hired by um, pharmaceutical companies as sponsors. The CRO provides all of the services very often, the manpower, and often the technology as well to power multi-center clinical trials, which involve so many different types of people with so many different types of training that often it's easier for a pharmaceutical company to have a partner in the execution of that that has all of those manpower and resources rather than them try to keep all of that expertise themselves. You know, it's funny, I was speaking to a friend of mine who is a public health expert, who is in a governmental role in public health in a very large state, who's in part you know, made responsible for thinking about some of the treatment uh, back to work, you know, issues. And, you know, she called me the other day asking for some recommendations of people who could help think through clinical trial issues. When I said, well, who do you have from the CRO world in there? She said, I, I've never heard of that. What, what's a CRO? And it really struck me in a very profound way how separated industry and public health, public policy sides are and how much of a problem that really creates. And you think about what goes on in the news and the repartee between, you know, pharma evil or not evil, you know, I wonder how much of it is just a lack of knowledge. There are definitely um, sort of micro economies that just support, say, the pharmaceutical industry right now that many other stakeholders have no visibility to. And Lisa, not only does that affect, say, policymakers and perceptions, it also affects a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators who have mm -hmm. no idea about what happens in this cryptic B2B environment of clinical research inside of pharmaceutical companies. And so very often with great ideas, entrepreneurs head to the terror terrain they know, consumer facing applications mm -hmm. or trying to sell to payers, which are tough paths to follow. Yeah. But I think it leaves a lot of white space for, uh, for people that can disintermediate and navigate mm -hmm. some of, the, some of this uh, strange web of organizations that support clinical trials in pharma today. So what was your trajectory like at the CRO? It sounds like you had a particularly good opportunity to work with kind of this rising star, um, Mark Goldberg. Do you want to describe what your experience there was like? I did work with a rising star named Mark Goldberg. Um, uh, when I came in, Mark was, uh, was uh, the person who hired me. He was running the medical imaging division at Park Cell, which was like a nascent group, largely based on his background in radiology and engineering. And it was, a, it was a meant to be like a central core lab where images for different studies would be centrally collected and we can read them in a more consistent uh, way with less variability as endpoints for studies. Um, I joined and I was the project manager uh, in this young group and Mark 
just uh, just grew uh, tremendously because of a strong vision that he had about the growing importance of technology and clinical research. Um, eventually, uh, Mark became the uh, the president and uh, and CEO of Parexcel as it as it grew and grew as a company. But during that time, I, I had a chance to take on a lot of new opportunities in, in areas uh, during that time, whether it was um, business development or other aspects of the operations in the business, and gave me a great view. Um, eventually, I, I, I started to, to want to own more of the molecule rather than just support the services around it. And so I, that, it was around that time that I knew it was time to move on. So coming from the public health side of, of thinking, what surprised you the most about the pharmaceutical landscape? You know, I, I was always amazed at the the amount of money that that was uh, spent there. Um, I always assumed that there was some machine for decision making that meant that those dollars were being spent in this, you know, meticulously thoughtful manner. Oh, like government, you mean? <laughs> the, it's the naivete coming out of a uh, of, of a of a public health uh, training, I guess. But um, you know, the the uh, the decision making in so many companies. I mean, uh, right away I came to see these companies that were making decisions based on consensus, and it amazed me that you know the way these people were going to decide these important things were just based on can we just get everybody to agree in the room, um, and it didn't seem to be at the time a very data intensive uh, process. It, it seemed to be um, loud people getting uh, getting their way. The organizational dynamics are fascinating, right? I mean, it's unbelievable once an organization is so big and the money being spent is so much, how many things are decided purely on the basis of just what can you accomplish in this matrix organization, right? That's That was sort of the key to my success at, uh, at Pfizer a few years later, which was, you know, <laughs> I just, want to hear about that. <laughs> how can, how can, if, if you can get things done in, in a big organization, then, um, you know, it, it can be remarkable. It can be remarkable. So we're going to get to that. I want to get to that almost right now. So there's just one. So I know that when you, you left Perexcel, uh, um, you joined a VC-backed company in Waltham. You, 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 you got some ownership of stuff. You ran clinical regulatory, got an IND filed. The company was bought by BMS. Boom, you're cooking with diesel. Everything is great. And then it seemed like just when you felt like you found your footing, Ironically, in the context of footing, you're preparing for a charity run, and then something profoundly changed. Can you take us through that? It was right around when my uh, second uh, child was born, and so, like a lot of you know young parents, I was tired, and you know that's not an unusual phenotype for a a parent of of two young kids. I decided to do um, with the company this Chase Corporate Challenge that was going on. And I knew I was a little out of shape at the time, but I didn't think it was that bad. And I could barely fin cross the finish line. And I kind of knew then something was going on and I had a cough that I, I just couldn't seem to shake. So I, I finally did go and um, get that looked at. That led me down this path of discovery as a patient, right? <laughs> and the, the value of my own data and my own journey to capturing a diagnosis, a diagnosis that for me was pulmonary sarcoidosis, and I right. uh, started to learn just how much lung function I had had lost to uh, to the scarring associated with that, but also the appreciation of the importance and value of my own data for me in that journey. Did and it take you a long time to get properly diagnosed for that? Because that's an unusual diagnosis, right? For a white Jewish guy? Yeah, yeah. 
Right. Because no, seriously. Right. Yeah. Because I would sit in clinics at places like BU Medical Center and residents would come walking in and like do a double take. And I'd, I'd almost joke with them that I know I'm not an African-American female. Right. But uh, because that's what they were all trained to think that this is a disease of of people that look a certain way. Um, but uh, in my case, I was really fortunate, Lisa. It didn't take me all that long to reach a diagnosis. I was really fortunate in connecting early with some really good resources, but I'm now on the board for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, and I hear from patients regularly exactly your point of what a long journey it is for them to try to navigate to find the right people that can help them to make that diagnosis. And that's such a particularly cryptic diagnosis. It's one of those things whenever they're, they're, they're doing these things in clinical medicine where you bring in an expert and you give them a story, um, you know, there's like three diagnoses. There, there's, there's like this desert fever thing. I'm not quite getting it right. Um, but like there's a, that, that, that it is a third of the time. There's something else, like um, mm -hmm. TB, it's a third of the time. And then it's sarcoid a third of the time. Um, because it's so cryptic and so unusual. So I'm, I'm happy you were diagnosed, but that's still a, such a poorly under, as you, I mean, you appreciate, but just for the audience, it's a poorly understood condition. Um, so then you made a big life change. You moved back to New York from the Boston area, and then you decided to join Pfizer, where you'd stay for 11 years, um, and you led their um, clinical uh, digital innovation. So I really wanted to spend the next little bit of time talking about some of what you you were thinking when you joined and what you told me, which I think is kind of relevant context for this conversation is you said you did the same job for 11 years, but it struck me that you joined and did this digital stuff before it even existed as a thing, much less was cool. Um, and so I'd love to hear what you were thinking and then how it evolved and then how you managed to be successful in what I see is just the ultimate big pharma of, um, of Pfizer. Wow, that's a big question, David. I do have to give a shout out though, in this journey around diagnosis as a patient, there was another diagnosis that, um, that I had help in making along that way. And that was what I, I like to think of as my diagnosis as an e-patient. And I remember sitting with the fabulous e-patient Dave, Dave DeBroncart, right? and we were sitting at a Panera and he was filling me in on what exactly um, was an e-patient. And it was, it was in that conversation that I really came to appreciate that that's me. Um, and I didn't know that jargon and I didn't know that, that, uh, that terminology for me, but it, it, it made sense. And, and I carried that thinking through when I joined into Pfizer. I was on this journey as a patient and the importance of data to me, but at the same time, I was a a clinical researcher and drug developer, and I had an appreciation for the impact of, of data into medicine development. And so important to me was this intersection around research, data, and the patient, and the amazing way that patients are bringing increasing control and ownership over their data into the process. And so when I came into Pfizer, I joined this group. I, I had some friends there at the time. Um, who, uh, who I came in to join, and they were looking at technology from outside of clinical research and how can they use that in R&D, things in health tech, things and beyond. And I joined on a Monday, and that weekend, Torcetrapib failed. And for those that don't follow pharma history playbooks, Torcetrapib was meant to be the son of, son of Lipitor. Uh, Lipitor, yeah. Yep, exactly, right? So to a big company that was relying on, at its peak, maybe $18 billion a year in revenue from one medicine, that was a pretty big follow-on 
to to lose. And so it started this cycle at Pfizer of a lot of new strategies to try to make up that revenue, a lot of shrinking and growing through acquisition and shrinking and growing through acquisition, a lot of reorganizations. I used to say that, you know, just as McKinsey was walking out the door from the last reorg, BCG was walking in the back door with the new slide deck for the next reorg. Um, and during that whole time, I just stayed focused on the challenge that I, I came in around, which was how can we use innovative approaches that weren't known in clinical research, things that already existed, but maybe weren't familiar in the research space. And how can we bring what that What year did in? you start working on this? Uh, that was now uh, 12 years ago. Okay. So like so, iPhones, not so much. iPhones, not so much. In fact, the, one of the first flagship projects that I, I helped the architect at Pfizer 11 years ago now was the first remote trial, the first trial to run entirely in the home. And we didn't use iPhones for that. We were using Nokia handsets. Um, if you, I guess you could go to the Smithsonian and find those nowadays. <laughs> but, but what's interesting, um, uh, uh, Craig, is when you were doing this, I mean, this strikes me as yours must have been sort of the exotic innovation guy. You know, they, they'll show your slides to, to demonstrate that they are committed to innovation and all of that stuff. But it seems to me like over the decade, this has gone from being this sort of like poster child for innovation or the innovation slide to, to distract from or to, you know, yeah, kind of to distract from all of the M&A stuff that actually drives the business and has become truly integral, I think, to how many companies, including I think Pfizer, hopefully, uh, you know, are really thinking about these capabilities. What was your experience on the inside and how did you see that evolution and where are we in that? David, when I, when I, it's interesting, there was kind of an arc to this. When I first started doing this work within Pfizer, the, the arc began with, uh, we can tolerate this. Um, this guy, you know, some of these ideas, we, we can live with that, right? It's, uh, he's not going to, you're not going to damage the things that are important to us. Just, just go, go do that. And, and there were enough leaders that kind of had my back around that. There were people inside of Pfizer at the time, like, like Briggs Morrison, who's, uh, I think, really well known in the field um, outside of Pfizer. And he, this, I, this was during a brief window when he was leading a lot of this work at Pfizer, and he gave me a lot of space. Um, after Merck, leaders, he used to be at Merck. That's right, after Merck. Um, there were leaders like Frida Lewis Hall, the chief medical officer yeah. that, you know, I didn't report directly to some of these folks, but I got to know them. By so you had really good air cover, it sounds like. I had good air cover. Um, some people that really, you know, had my back around this. And, and I built very early on without realizing it, a network of some really good people that were very like-minded around this. And so when we first started doing things like the remote trial, it wasn't even like on a slide. Uh, uh, that right. Pfizer would put out. I don't remember. I, I mean, I don't know. I ever heard about it, but I, I think that's so interesting. Eventually, uh, we put out a press release um, from Pfizer, which was a big deal at the time to announce that we were doing a, a novel study. And I remember when we put out the press release, I, I told the folks in the corporate communications group that someone from the FDA wanted to put a quote in our press release. And they looked at me and said, people from the FDA don't put quotes in Pfizer press releases. And lo and behold, Janet Woodcock uh, put a quote in, in that press release voicing wow. support for these types of innovative strategies. They were very much aligned to her vision and the, the future state that she wanted to point to. And I think from that point, David, to your point, people started to appreciate, 
oh, some of these things can really fit in nice into slide decks and stories <laughs> about what we're doing and where we're going. Things like our ability to um, return data and results back to research participants just became, you know, good substrate. Things like our work, uh, we, a program I launched with my team called M Clinical about using mobile and our trials just became, you know, good substrate to go out and, and talk externally around. So the story kind of went from we can tolerate this and, and a few leaders can give cover to, oh, this stuff makes some good slideware and a couple of nice releases a year and some good news stories when there are bad news cycles out there. And then it sort of peaked with that, that inflection point you were mentioning that, oh, wait a minute, this, these things should be our new way forward. These need to become part of our new normal and baked into our business rather than just interesting stories. So Craig, was that effort at Pfizer, the digital effort, all focused on the R&D and clinical trials side internally focused as opposed to patient focused, externally focused and, you know, beyond the pill type stuff? So my work was all around clinical trials and clinical research. And uh-huh. I, I focused it in four areas, um, our use of digital, our strategies for engaging patients in new ways, our collaborations with large health systems to embed research as a care option, and then finally various uh, consortia and multi-stakeholder collaborations. And in each of those, there were different types of kind of very visible flagship picks that we had, but a lot of other strategies around it. And a lot of these, to your point, intersected. So the things around digital never drifted that far from strategies to better engage and include patients, such as around their own personal data. So when you think of, you know, think 12 years now of this time that this has been going on between you and then others eventually catching up, do you think that the use of digital is fundamentally more and different or is it kind of st- stuck in the same low burn, you know, that it was 10 years ago or so? Because it, it really seems to, there's still a lot of talk to me and, and not as she much. She wants activity. to know if it crossed the chasm yet. Yeah, right. Uh, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, last year, I knew it was time for me to move on from Pfizer. And, and it wasn't because there was any sort of breaking point. It was because a lot of these things that, I could hold on to because they were white space that nobody really cared about or felt that they should own, really reached a tipping point where these things needed to be embedded in a business as how we do our business, whether that so was strategies to engage with patients, digital tools like use of mobile or strategies around health information technology, collaborations yeah. with health systems. These couldn't just be a a ring-fenced area for you know a, a change agent like Craig to hold on to and own. They really needed to be a part of the business where business owners who were dealing with related issues owned these digital elements as well. Now, uh, we did bring in, and, and I can't speak to this specifically because it was just as I was leaving, a chief digital officer uh, into the company around that same time. But I still believe that the the strategy that makes the most sense for large organizations is that the people that own the business have to own the use of digital in those businesses. Yeah, what but I mean, your... isn't it usually the case that the people who own the businesses have so little experience in digital and technology that they don't really, unless they happen to have their religion for some reason, they just can't get there. They're just not those people. They can't get there. It's hard. Their heads down, you know, turning the crank with their operations, mm-hmm. trying to just trying to keep up with that. But at the same time, if somebody who is adjacent to them is cooking up all these, you know, exquisite digital solutions, they'll never fit them into the machine. 
And well, that's what I want to ask. What's your key to the getting the cultures to work? Because pharma has a particular culture like you're experienced with. And we've, I, I mean, a, a topic that always comes up is how do you get people to work in an integrated way that respects each other's sort of capabilities and brings out the both, you know, sort of both of them. I mean, tech companies have the reverse situation where they bring in like medics and kind of generally treat them sort of like as, as sort of peripheral. Um, whereas sometimes they, you know, for statisticians, for data people, for tech people, that's how, that they sort of have this derivative experience working for a pharma company. How did you get to make sure that that didn't happen? What was your a secret to organizational success? Find that folks in particular in an R&D organization really respond to people who can empathize as an R&D person. Um, it's very hard, I think, for a technologist to come in and get the right level of credibility on their own. I think that they need to have a voice of somebody who's been in that chair, who can empathize with what that R&D leader, that clinical researcher, that study team is dealing with because they've been there themselves, but can still show them that there's a, path, a different path forward and can show them that there's a way to do this that won't hurt people, that won't jeopardize their job, that won't put the company you know, in, in a courtroom. And, and honestly, as, as crazy as it sounds, those three criteria very often were three of the critical criteria I would often think about, right? We can't hurt people, nobody wants to get fired, and we can't wind up in court. What did you do to drive buy-in though? You know, were, were, was it something concrete? Was it an abstract idea? Because on the one hand, from the C-level, everyone's pushing this digital transformation that we've all discussed. On the other hand, people have their actual jobs to do. So often they just sort of see this as another sort of corporate initiative that they sort of have to you know, fend off while they're trying to do their real work. There's definitely a top-down and bottom-up element to this. It is hard to do it without having at least some level of leadership blessing. But I'll share a quick example. When we were first introducing certain um, experiments using electronic informed consent, right, which, which in and of itself doesn't seem remarkably disruptive, right, moving a consent with a patient participating in a trial from a, a, a piece of paper on a clipboard to a tablet. Um, but we went down this path of, you know, we worked with leaders and we found uh, uh, there were two teams they were going to assign to us and you're going to work with these teams and they will be told to work with you and, you know, you can figure this out with them. And what I didn't really appreciate in that journey was um, how many other teams would self-identify and want to be you know, fast followers right on the tail. They didn't want to wait. My, our thinking was we would generate evidence of what worked with these first two teams that were given to us, and then we'll go out and start to build up more scale with others. And instead, what we found was there are always an army of, of people that are also on this tail that want to step forward and want to use these tools. And in, 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 in order to drive more change and adoption in an organization, we have to identify those people, right? And we have to give them yeah. the ability to join that army because that's how these things go viral. It's almost like that dancing man video from the old TED <laughs> talk, right? <laughs> Maybe I was the idiot that was standing up and doing the first dancing, but like they say in the video, you know, it's those next two brave souls that stand up and start dancing that validate it and make it into a real movement. And if you can find those people that want to stand up and give them the a little bit of music so that they feel that they can get up and dance, you can really make some of these things go viral in the organization. 
I just love this. I mean, in my last you know, you know, role, one of the things that I found, it was in a different pharma, was when I would go around and give some of these talks about, you know, some kind of vision and, and what we could do, there would always be a few people afterward who go, I want that. Like, I didn't know that there were people here who believed that this is, there was this incredible sense of, um, which I'm still experiencing, you know, self-identification. So it really is, um, you know, in a previous, even in a role before that, I described it as sort of like uh, vision dating, where, you know, you try to sort of go out and find people who sort of share that vision. So I think it's so exciting. Now, I wanted to have a, I know we only have a few minutes, but um, like you said, you left Pfizer. And I just wanted to um, have a few minutes here for you to describe what you're doing now and how you're liking it and, and what you're hoping to uh, to do next, given the number of options that uh, it sort of, you must have with all your success at Pfizer. So uh, thank you so much for that, David. I, I Honestly, I feel like I'm doing the exact same thing I was doing when I was at Pfizer. I'm continuing to work with so many different groups around a lot of these same challenges in clinical research today. So I, I find myself working with biotech and pharma companies around prioritizing different innovation opportunities for their medicine development organizations. I'm working with tech and startup on their own products and go to market to make an impact on this space and with a lot of investors who are looking at opportunities to try to make an impact here. Um, but the best part for me is uh, the ability and uh, to and the good fortune to be able to choose who I get to work with. And one thing that's wonderful in this space is the people that come into clinical research uh, really have a lean towards that spirit of public health that we started with. They, they truly want to make an impact and they truly believe that they're here not just to, to, um, to, to make money and to succeed, which you know many of them can, but they, they really want to make an impact and that's why they've chosen to work in this space. Uh, I'll tell you right now that a lot of my time is being spent on um, on COVID-19 trial continuity. So as you can imagine, being a guy who did one of the first clinical trials to run in people's homes, that's pretty topical right now. And so I'm spending a lot of time with folks helping them to pivot and adapt their existing studies, but importantly, try and work through how to embed this to not just be protocol deviations and SOP waivers that we have to work around, but how do we instantiate this as the new normal and really commit to this change? Or at least give people the option. A personal question, because I mean, that the COVID-19 question really makes me want to circle back to your own diagnosis and your e-patientness. And, you know, so you've got a particular risks profile in this current situation, I would think. Um, have you been engaging as an e-patient tracking your data, you know, using your pulse oximeter, using it to sort of think about how you engage in the world right now? So um, I, I have to tell you, being a, a person who's been in drug development, having a background in epidemiology where my work at Columbia was really in, in infectious disease, and then being a patient with an immune-mediated pulmonary disease and living in New Jersey, oh, I definitely yeah. felt a target on my back for the last few weeks. Oh, um, my data is not terribly interesting right now because I am oh, so great. locked down in this bubble that, good, I'm, right? uh, that I'm in um, <laughs> that you know my data itself is, is, pretty, is pretty boring. But suffice to say, um, I continue to track. I have uh, a number of devices that, that I enjoy tracking with and just keeping tabs around. Um, I've got a few Withings products laying around here that I like and you know, an Apple Watch to boot. So uh, a lot of these you know, are, are, are certainly important to me, but right now my data is pretty boring. 
<laughs> well, that's the thing. That's what they always say. In medicine, we'd always say you never want to be an interesting patient. So I'm glad. I'm, let's hope that you stay, that, that you don't become one. Um, thank you so much for um, for joining us. Just an absolutely fascinating and inspiring journey and discussion. Yeah, really, really interesting. And I think, you know, it's good to talk to people who've been thinking around this digital field for a long time. And I'm amazed. Uh, I think most of us who, who are in that position have been uh, sort of excited by how much has changed and, and horrified by how little has changed at the same time. <laughs> at least I remain optimistic as, as we see some of these different opportunities continue, whether it's people are more aware of clinical research than ever before. The availability of digital health tools is only growing. And thanks in large part to, uh, you know, even the most recent HHS announcement around their open data API, yeah. I think this is just going to put even more health data in the hands of patients, in the hands of patients who nine times out of 10 when surveyed are willing to share that data to support research. And so um, I think this convergence around research participation, data-enabled patients, and digital tools is really uh, an, an amazing inflection point. Well, that's a great note to, to leave it on. Um, thank you so much. That was awesome. Thank you both. So pretty interesting, huh, Lisa? I've never spoken to Craig before, and I didn't know him before you invited him to the show. And yet, you know, you and he and I have traveled in similar circles for a long, long time. And it's it's so interesting to me um, that he's been working on this for 12 years at, at Pharma, because who knew? I know. At yeah. Pfizer, right? I mean, like Pfizer, Pfizer. I always thought, yeah. you know, it's sort of such this sort of very, very, you know, I always view it as almost like the most corporate of corporate companies, constantly in a state of reorg, constantly, you know, mer- you know, M&A, 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 M&A. But it here's this seems like this sort of like organic digital effort that this guy somehow underneath it all has been doing um, and really sort of growing to the point where in the ultimate statement of respect, they're actually putting a business person on it, right? Yeah. So uh, it must be they must be taking it seriously. So that's cool. Well, please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report and read his occasional book reviews in the Wall Street Journal. And you can follow the always captivating Lisa <laughs> Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Ectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in quarantine in Northern California. Stay safe. Stay inside. Ah.